0: Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. As we continue our crypto-native series, today we welcome a special guest who is the embodiment of first-generation entrepreneurship in America. Ash, as we call him, is building Kema Trading to provide institutional-grade infrastructure for digital asset derivatives trading. Ash is a born problem solver. When he sees a problem in need of a solution, he executes and implements to achieve a better outcome. His story is one of never settling for the status quo and always seeking the next wave of personal growth and development, not just for himself, but also others. It's also one of hard work, determination, and persistence to overcome adversity. Growing up in his native Egypt, he embraced computer science and competitive sports, even making the Egyptian swimming team on his path to college in the US. In his junior year of college, he started a Facebook group called Cairo Confessions, focused on mental health and breaking down taboos Across the MEA region. Today, it is a member community of several hundred thousands with its own TED event, numerous conferences, community gatherings, and a weekly live podcast with 20,000 listeners. As a software engineer, he quickly developed as someone who could both implement and design complex platform architectures in highly demanding production environments powering the financial industry. As the head of cloud platform at TradeWeb, He spearheaded the firm's strategy for its global cloud footprint and honed his credentials as a fintech leader. Looking at the digital asset universe, he observed that most institutional trading desks lacked the infrastructure necessary to execute and manage derivative trading strategies adjacent to traditional markets. If one took the view that the growth of the crypto derivatives market would ultimately mirror TradFi, his belief was that the new technology was needed to optimize access to liquidity, data pipelines, pre-trade analytics, execution, and post-trade workflows. And speaking with various head traders in the industry, many were excited to pilot Kemet's product and supportive of its cohesive approach across both CFI and DeFi. Ash was able to secure his initial funding from an impressive list of institutional investors, including Flow Traders, Genesis, Ledger Prime, and X3E, in a challenging year for crypto markets. This is a testament to his ability to clearly articulate Kemet's long-term value proposition and differentiate himself through execution. Ash graduated with a degree in computer science from the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: I grew up in Cairo, Egypt. My entire life, I was born and raised there. I remember very early on just having a a very unique interest in in computers and technology, honestly, as as a broad term, as much as it gets. I had a kind of very strict upbringing, mostly going to private schools as I was growing up, and my parents were very strict about my academic performance as well as sports in general. They really wanted me to like sort of be a, a type A kid. At the very early age of six, I was pretty much you know involved in essentially swimming professionally as I you know, started growing. And I joined the Egyptian national team at the age of 14. During that same time, I was more or less kind of an, an, an A student around the age of 12. I think that was when my dad bought me my first laptop. Because I was telling him, like, I was very interested in programming and coding in general, which was kind of very unorthodox. At the time, this was around, you know, 06. At the time, there were very few resources available on the internet for, you know, teaching yourself how to code, especially where I was. And... The majority of people who would eventually start learning how to code either, you know, would, would go to an engineering school, try to specialize in math, and then sort of from there on join a one of the very few international companies that are around the region to start like learning how to code. Or they would pay thousands of pounds to join a certificate based like course that is like six months tailored for for professionals. So that was that was one of those things that was actually I was very fortunate. At. My parents signed me up for one of these around the age of 13. I remember like everyone around me was at least like 27 or 28 in terms of age. So that was very weird for a lot of people there. But for me, it was the most exciting time. And yeah, that was the beginning. I early on started dabbling with sort of like networking. Hacking was such a big thing for me as a kid. I used to sniff for packets for Wi-Fi networks around us. It was a very unique time and I found myself like very good at it. And I remember very distinctively in 07 when Facebook just became a billion dollar company. And I was very sort of, it just was, I was kind of angry. I really wanted to get a chance to to be someone who ends up building something that has that kind of influence. But I also recognized very early on that it's very, very hard to accomplish that in Egypt. and, And also the fact is I was the first kid in my entire family to kind of decide to do anything else but like construction my my dad has seven siblings so they're a total of eight and they've been basically in construction engineering for the past like 90 years so yeah it's um it was an incredible time growing up kind of in you know especially in a family where that was not exactly the pathway but here we are i got lucky
0: so there's two things that stand out in, in my conversations with you. One is you're evidently a self-starter. You have this ability to take something, to master it, and to make decision, to manifest it, and act on it. And then the second, you know, in our interactions, you know, I I think, and I say this, there are, you know, in the in the spectrum of engineers, people are more or less social and gregarious, and you. Come across as a, a gregarious social person. So, were you like that growing up, or is something that you developed over over time? And then, why do you think you are such a self starter?
1: Thank you for calling me that. Honestly, I, I, I it's interesting to kind of like look at myself from that lens. I don't want to give myself too much credit. I think it's just the the conditioning, right? Really. Like being early on, kind of being put on this pedestal. Of like, you know, you have to perform. Like I said, my parents really wanted like wanted the best for me. And while sometimes they were very, very strong, you know, opinion about how things should be done, I think that played a huge role into who I am. My dad was also a very strong proponent of like independence in terms of like decision making within boundaries, right? Within, within the boundaries of success from his perspective. But at the same time, we're, we're very, very, that was a very empowering sort of paradigm. One of the key things I remember, like back when I was in seventh grade, my dad and I had like this deal, like, every single academic year if my grades are at a certain threshold i would be given a you know a month to travel abroad to any country that i get to pick and choose on my own first time i left egypt i was like in the eighth grade i was just it was just myself on a plane and everyone thought my, my parents were incredibly mad to kind of have this kid go to germany for 30 days and not really having a plan just going there to kind of explore and i'm like this kid literally i can't see myself doing it with my own kids to be honest like on their own but it's an incredible feeling of empowerment and it's like i think they've been instilled in me this notion of always trying to see if i'm gonna be able to float or not if i'm like thrown into like the deep ends and i i kind of like i'm i'm very addicted to this at this point right like where it's like i just want to see if i'm able to get something done or not but like, like just like everyone else i'm not Superman, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a stuff starter at everything, but a lot of things that I wish I could, you know, be much better at, for example, just, just being healthier, like sleeping better, a lot of things obviously also with, with how I do professionally, like, so I, I wouldn't put myself on this sort of spectrum of, of an example, but for sure, a lot of the experiences that I've been through have been, the most common theme has been like, just, you've got nothing else by yourself. So I, I guess that's that's the only pathway forward, right? And that really helps build that muscle of just get shit done because no one else is going to really make it happen for you.
0: Makes sense. Makes sense. No, it's very coherent. And I think it, it bodes well for what ended up happening in sort of your, your various entrepreneurial efforts. So walk us through your career progression. You know, so you went to college in the U.S., right? So at some point you come to the U.S. Yeah. And then... Walk us through sort of the initial stages of getting a job in the US, working, you know, like, you know, formative years professionally. And how did you develop your professional DNA at that point?
1: Absolutely. So I I came to the US in 2011. I first went to Kent State University in Ohio. I spent a year there. Quickly also realized that's just not the place for me. The sort of academic bar was very low i ended up with like a 3.97 gpa by the first like year and i wasn't really doing anything so i started feeling like this this is not worth the time to travel all the way here and so i I decided the next step is to just go on to a sort of a journey of finding a better school that can challenge me even further so with obviously also some of the constraints of just finances because it's the, the u.s dollar comparable to the egyptian pound was it's not the well, most straightforward-like relationship. It's a, it's a very toxic relationship. So the next step from there, I went to the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. I quickly realized that Lincoln is not a place for someone like myself. I spent a semester there. And then from there on I moved to the what I could tell more or less is one of the best schools engineering-wise in the Midwest, which was the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. I was very fortunate to be given you know, quite a scholarship there. As an international student, that's a very rare thing to happen. And that was what uh, was incredible. It helped a lot sort of mint even further like that this is this is the right journey. And I graduated in 2015. So my intention was never to be in the United States. I wanted to be here to learn about how to like, you know, how can I become this incredible technologist that can build your organization's that essentially span, like, you know, the entire globe. But I never really intended to be in the U.S. I always had this dream that, like, the, the Arab Spring in 2011, I wanted to go back and be a part of, like, rebuilding the region, right? Like, kind of rebuilding to the, the future and writing the new story of, like, entrepreneurship in, in that region. But as we all know, like, you know, plans never sort of come to fruition the way we envision them. So I ended up in 2015, there was another sort of unrest going on in Egypt, with the president kind of like being toppled and another president coming into power, and my parents is like suggested at the time, and a lot of friends were like, you hey, know, why don't you give it a shot in the U.S. for a year? We're not going anywhere, and let's let's see how that goes. So, my first job out of, out of school was uh, was at a uh, a financial services company in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So the first company I worked at was a company called Deluxe Financial. They were you know a hundred year old like check company focused on fraud detection and you know checks for SMEs and and, and other various like financial services that they complement to their main like verticals, and they were on a journey to kind of transform their entire technical organization to be a lot more modernized. I was very lucky to be able to get a job straight out of school. Just as a quick caveat to some of your listeners, as an international student in the United States today, it's a very, very hard thing to get a job because you are required essentially to have your employer be okay with sponsoring you which is just a, quite a, a barrier to entry. So it's a, it's a problem. And, and even if you end up having a job, you're constantly thinking of, you know, if something goes wrong, I'm not to see the country or find another job. It's a very, very stressful situation. But like I said, I, was, I got very lucky uh, to be able to give to be given that opportunity. And that was my first real job. Within a year and a half, I was promoted, you know, two times. I found myself very, very good at architecting like platforms and building platform engineering technology. You know, at the time I started introducing like various technologies, like, you know, containerization, uh, continuous integration to organizations that were using the likes of PVCS and CVS, like which predates like even occurring like an SVN. So th- these were very old companies, but had a lot of resources and were interested in kind of modernizing themselves. And I found myself being empowered very early on. And then I believe my first like lucky break was in 2017. I-, I had the the lucky opportunity to be given essentially the first SRE job at Arcesium, which the- was the Israel's like spinoff. For the first time, I-, I kind of found myself in New York and was given even the more sort of expansive landscape to try things at at a very very different sort of bar performance. So it's it's a secret, but. Most of the technical talent and, and the likes of Shaw and firms at that level are incredibly strong. And it's a, it's a very fulfilling experience learning-wise. You get to be put basically at the, you know, this is what I mean, like, see, you know, where you get to really see if you're going to float or not. That's a deep end, right? You're around the best engineers in the world. There are folks that are essentially renowned authors of, of flagship books in the industry that are working there and you get to talk to these people every day. And the level of complexity of challenges that you get to be dealing with is also very, very few get to be exposed to that kind of scale and that kind of complexity. So that put me even further on the map from there on. And the next move was I ended up joining TradeWeb as director of platform technology. And then I became head of cloud, sort of cloud operation, which was a newly minted function altogether. I was basically 26 and found myself like, in this director title, so it's, uh, like I said, another lucky break. There's a lot of fortune as someone, like I said, who came in from across like the Atlantic and had no one here, like zero sort of relationships or strings to pull or people to rely on. I'd say I'm, you know, like I said, I'm very, very grateful for the very multiple series of fortune events that ended up like, forming who I am today. That's kind of the quick career rundown. And then from there on in 21, I decided to go, well, December 21, I decided to go ahead and like build Kemet.
0: Yeah, not to interrupt you there, but to summarize, again, we see this pattern of the ability to grasp a new environment and to make the best of it, but also one that it's very clear that you would never satisfied with the status quo right whether it's picking the right college right and not giving up sort of your on your ambitions to get the best knowledge to get the best training to get exposure to the best colleagues or students or professors and you know when you look at the dna that one develops as they go into entrepreneurship and what it takes to succeed you need to have this constant drive you also talk about the I'll say it, the fear or the stress that comes with being an immigrant in this country. Thankfully for this conversation, but as you're right, pointing to a broad set of listeners, I went through the same process as a French national, and it does create an additional sort of motivating factor, especially if you're very committed to succeeding and value and cherish what the U.S. has to offer in terms of a platform to succeed. I think it's very important, and it's no surprised that a lot of entrepreneurs and successful entrepreneurs in this country are first generation immigrants. And I think, you know, you're a manifestation of that. So I think it's important to reemphasize that because all these things brought together create this fire in your belly, this ongoing motivation to continue to tackle bigger and and better things. Right. And evidently being in tech, you were given and having a talent for it you were given a platform to succeed. The other thing that's that's pretty clear, at least in my interpretation also of your path, is the ability to communicate and articulate things because it's not just doing and building the technology. When you get put in leadership positions, it's also the ability to articulate the value of certain engineering decisions to your peers, managing up, managing down. And so that's that's also very important, especially as you get into a role where you need to convince investors, you need to convince your employees, your stakeholders of the value of every decision that you're making. So you say in 2021, you decide to start a new business. Can you walk us through what was the initial driver and thesis behind your idea? Like purpose, problem? What, what was the solution to the problem and what market you were intending to go after?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think the best problems to solve usually arise from someone being exposed to a certain domain for a while and just like kind of recognizing that there was a problem because they've learned about that domain for a while and then they've sort of seen patterns of that same problem in other sort of relevant ecosystems or like sort of parallel markets. And that's kind of like what happened here. On the personal side, I got involved in crypto for the first time in 2014. You know, the first real time I heard about Bitcoin was back in 2012, and I thought it was a bunch of garbage. To be honest, I thought there was you know this doesn't sound like something that could scale at a global level. And even if it did, I just don't see a, the utility in Bitcoin as sort of a you know this this digital commodity. But once Ethereum started coming out on sort of out there as a technologist, I saw that as a this could mean something, right? Like because democratizing compute across the globe sounded like something that could can, that can really, really change how we do things. At the time, obviously, cloud was still such a big, big theme. A lot of people were selling, you know, somewhere on the fence, but the majority, I'd say, of tech companies were now using cloud uh, in, in 14 and before. But it was very clear that, like, you know, it's a, it's a very centralized business owned by, you know, a couple of really, really big names. And they basically have full control over whether they keep you on the platform or just shut you out. They can decide if you get to spin up an instance or not, and it's it's all up to their discretion. Ethereum sounded like this this crazy thing that would just allow anyone to deploy code on essentially, you know, pay yeah sort of an arcade-like experience for compute, right? Just drop in some ETH and, and well, we're good to go, right? Run your code on this this distributed layer that no one can touch. So I, I got invested to Ether at the time. And 14, and then I started learning even further and further about sort of like the ecosystem, learning more about like different projects and what are the potential utility use cases here. But very clearly from the get-go, the most popular use case for the entire sort of space was trading, right? This was anyone that got involved, the first thing they would do is just start trading. And that's how the market started, honestly, just getting its its sort of hype, its its critical mass of adoption on the retail side. It was not the marvel of technology. It was just the notion of the movement of the value of these things because of hype or, you know, various different traders that are getting involved in the scene. So in 2017, I started getting, you know, some ideas just from the exposure that I had to Shaw and like sort of building some of these systems that eventually if there's a move for institutional, there needs to be some adequate infrastructure like for them to actually interact with such a market because of the, the nascent nature of it. Even though it's quite huge, and there's potentially a lot of alpha that can be made there, but it's worthless if you can't really deal with it at the institutional level with all the sort of, you know, buttons and knobs and controls and, and sort of operational excellence that is required to mobilize multi-million dollar like sort of positions. But I realized also that was very. It might be too early to start building something like that. Everything seems very sporadic, and it's too too cyclical to kind of go out and build something for it right now. And at the time, it was mostly a spot market. And uh, from my perspective, I it was evident that we obviously eventually going to go to a derivative space at one point. But like, it just doesn't seem like it's here today. And I don't feel like institutional money, even if it is interested in spot today, will forever be interested in that side. They're real sort of influence is going to be happening on the derivative side because as you know some of your listeners might be aware like derivatives in general are very complex instruments that are not made for you know, retail investment the driven space overall i would say is driven by institutional flow so naturally that same sort of you know reality would just cascade over to crypto if there were ever to be a market as such which evidently there is obviously today so i kind of kept the idea on the side and then it just, you know, 20, early 21, it just became too clear that, like, this is not reality. It needs to happen. Options are are picking up a little bit too too stronger, like a little bit too, you know, much stronger than I expected them to be picking up. And I, it feels like this is the time to go out and build something that is adequate for this crowd. I got married in July of 21. My wife, I already have told her about this idea, like, almost a year before, and she was the one who was constantly pushing me for it. Yeah, well, I got married in July, and then, like, two months later, I'm, like, telling her, I'm going to quit my job at the end of the year. I'm, like, I'm going to build this. So she was, like, that's, that's good. Let's do it. So that's also just a note out there, obviously, like, that if it wasn't for her support, it uh, would have been very hard to kind of make a decision like that two months into a, you know, a, a new marriage. But it, you know, evidently, like here we are, and I decided like, that this is what I wanted to do for a while. Pulling the trigger was actually far easier than I thought it would be. I just found myself kind of just building and building oh. from there.
0: What was the reaction when you, presumably you walked into someone's office, I mean, it was during the pandemic, so I don't know if you were remote, and, and announced that you were going out, and did you give, were you specific as to why you were quitting?
1: No, no. I've had, I've had prior, I'd like, sort of conversations with the person who, you know, was my manager at the time, like, about, I want to go out and build something, and I remember them, like, sort of saying, like, you know, I, I'd be interested in investing in something like that if you ever do decide to make for it, right? But I realistically i don't think they ever thought that i would actually pull the trigger remember like i was a director and i was like you know 27 year old like who's who has this title and like i'm one title away from being md uh which i was on track of like hopefully before the age of 30 and that was that would have been quite a feat in the industry i'd say for everyone that i know that would be just quite some madness to go for i was fully remote since like early 20 like mid 2019 i had incredible flexibility i would go out and like work from cairo like for three four months of the year i would just like i had all this power in a position that was very very well paying with insane upside on the corporate side like you know i had every reason not to go and do this but i you know just i guess like you said it's just kind of a the same theme over and over again in my life just kind of want more and want to kind of like just get to, to push myself a little bit further and see how it goes from there. So
0: And it sounds like you have a support system in your wife, your family's supportive. So what capital did you start with? Like did you start with your own capital? I know you closed around and successfully so, which which says a lot about your ability to convince and and articulate. But what was the initial stage, like the pre-seed capital? What did you start with?
1: So I, I set aside $20,000 for just for freelancing, like potential resources that I might have them to do some one-offs here and there for setting up our, you know, the corporate entity for sort of like travel to conferences for, you know, infrastructure cost anything that I could maybe use for the first, like, you know, four or five months. And then I felt that that was, that was fine. That was adequate. I ended up not really using it at all that much quickly in so i started things in december i believe i we got our fir, like our first check in february early february so and that that was a $50,000 check in feb and then i closed around i got my lead investor in the first week of april so things moved really 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 fast i didn't really have to, had to use that much capital to get things off the ground I although I did intend to obviously I I did put aside not just some you know the the 20k but also I did put aside some money uh, in case I I would go further. The plan was I'm going to be building for at least six months and then in June I'll go out and try and see if I'm able to raise for this product that I'm building. Basically, I have a poc. It is an enterprise kind of like you know it's a B two B platform. It's relatively expensive to build. Obviously, and very very hard to build on my own. I would need more people so there was zero chance that i could just go the lean startup way of doing this right uh i had to just prove that there is a pathway here kind of show that like i'm able to execute on something and that was my plan and then six months from there and on i would go out and try to get some believers and some angel investors and hopefully maybe raise a, a very small pre-seed round as sort of a a token of credibility But that was the plan, right? And if I was not able to do that by December, a full year of dedicating my time to this thing, I would then reassess if it's, you know, if I do have what it takes to actually be a person that sort of creates a company out of thin air or not, because it is the hardest thing in the world, right?
0: What were the main objections, if any, an obstacle to, you're saying it happened really fast and you were really caught the tail end of this formidable crypto boom in VC funding. But were there any objections? What kind of rejections did you get when pitching the company?
1: I think the, honestly, it's, um, I I don't recall any sort of objections. I I had some folks kind of ask, why not also do SPOT instead of just like derivatives? That was more of a sort of a, a curiosity rather than like a, why are you, we can't, we can't get involved in this because you're not doing SPOT. Yeah, I think from the get-go, it was very clear that there was a quite a gap for a product as such. Nothing on the driver side that is at the performance level, at the reliability sort of like you know focus that we've dropped into like the architecture of our infrastructure. Nothing was was remotely close to what we were trying to build and, and promise to build. And also, I think I, I feel like founder background fit is a big, big part of this. That's definitely something like I said, just as part of my fortune there. Very few people have had the chance of sort of being at the forefront of reliability engineering for some of the most sophisticated like funds in the world, right? And those pose a very unique view into how to build things and how to make them resilient. So it was very easy to convince people that like I'm the right person to build for this market and sort of build for a reliable sort of pathway of, of adoption at the infrastructure layer because I've I'm one of the few people that have done this already on the TradFi side, and I'm building for the same customer that I'm hoping to sort of have on board. And I think that was that was a very very strong selling point early on.
0: What about established competitors in spot moving into the derivative space? So places like Talos, for example, places like Elwood.
1: Yeah. So I I think the my answer to that question at the time when it was posed and it was honestly posed very few, but. It was mostly revolving around two things. One is the the future addressable market is so vast and huge and global and permissionless that it's almost impossible for just like one or two players to service like the entire like landscape of institutional adoption onto the derivative side. And two, which was more important, is like, you know, these are potentially companies that have already found PMF on the spot side and their majority of investment. Um, and talent is focused on building for what seems to be allowing them to win right now. So even if they were to decide to shift their focus onto something purely as, as driven as what we were building, not only would it be hard to find and dedicate resources that are able to actually build this thing, but it would be a quite a risk in a time where they're already winning quite hard. Um, and it would take them a while to catch up on a very sort of lean team that is an entire job and focus is to build for this like new world. in addition to just inherently at the technology level like and this is something a lot of like you know technologists would resonate with it's, it's especially in the financial markets, it's just it's, it's, um, it's far harder to integrate derivatives into a spot you know focused infra versus essentially supporting spot trading once you've built your derivatives uh, sort of world. So that also poses another barrier to entry is like it, it's, it's technologically not simple Uh, it would require a lot more effort probably be a thousand percent easy for them to just like wait and grow very very big uh, on the spot side and then hopefully collaborate partner up or sort of acquire a smaller player that's trying to build for that space
0: understood yeah i mean i guess another objection might have been i know the market was booming in 2021 and to a certain extent, you know, we have sort of plateaued on listed derivatives volumes, options on Bitcoin and ETH. You know, we're hovering in sort of that 300 to 450 billion band of volume, notional traded dollar terms every year. And the trajectory is it is a bet on the existence of this market five, 10 years from now. I'm fully assuming that your investors, as well as yourself, are committed to this outcome. You know, you've, you've made analogies to the fact that you believe the market opportunity is going to be very vast, but I could see how investors might have paused for a second and said, how relevant is this in the near term or even in the midterm in terms of objections? So if we move to the, the business itself and to qualify the opportunity for, for listeners, can you just in a nutshell, again, articulate what is the value proposition? Who are your main target customers and markets and then we'll talk about dependencies and counterparties that are necessary for the ecosystem of the suite that you commercialize needs to function
1: yeah so chemit is a pure technology partner of essentially any financial institution whether it's a buy side firm a sell side for perhaps even the family office we've seen a lot of like interest coming in from various different players on the institutional side who simply want a living and breathing operating system to manage their full trade life cycle and derivatives in obviously the digital asset space so in a nutshell this is where your analysts your traders your compliance guys your portfolio managers your fund admins every sort of function that you might have within your institutional org that is essentially in charge of interacting with the digital asset derivative ecosystem they would be using Kemet to manage that function, which then obviously would close that loop of that full trade lifecycle. So, you know, the analysis, price discovery to execution to post-trade workflows and PNL calculation and risk management, we sort of hone in the bare bones, the most critical pieces of functionality within each one of these requirements, and then essentially build that and allow it to kind of work cohesively in a single workflow. So yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of what we do. So
0: what is different in the digital asset space, if anything, from let's say a typical workflow of trading derivatives in TratFi?
1: So I wouldn't say there's a lot of differences in the workflow per se, right? Like institutional in general tends to approach markets in very sort of fixated design patterns, so to speak our value proposition is well it's multiple things but i'll start off with like the very obvious this is a very fragmented market at all sorts of layers right the data is completely botched out there and it's all over the place the liquidity is essentially, essentially no, in in various different like places and parties who each represent themselves in a different interface at the api layer or you know in terms of connectivity protocols even the risk management of being able to see what are you exposed to at a given time? How do I assess an opportunity? How do I move myself into a position without sort of you know, moving the entire market given how small it is? These are all like very critical pieces of being able to do things in any financial market. And that's obviously not the case today in digital assets and especially in through the digital asset derivatives. So what we attempt to do is uh, give firms a you know a pure technology offering that essentially solves for a lot of these pain points. They can leverage Kemet to look at the you know at the derivative space within digital assets as a single unit. Everything gets translated into a Kemet model of how you look at things. You know when you want to go out and sort of position yourself, let's say you want to buy uh, you know $10 million worth of Bitcoin perps, right? And you want to be able to do that from a centralized like you know point with cohesive understanding of like your risk, with being able to leverage advanced like order types or trading strategies that are relevant to you as an institution, this would require immense investment into engineering and building internally. And it at the end of the day, it might not be you know the right solution by the time you know, that you are done with it. This is a very very fast-moving market. At the end of the day, like these firms are not technology companies. Their first and foremost like, job is to generate alpha and go out and sort of you know, hedge their clients or make more money for their clients. They don't want to get into the world of like building tech. And that's kind of what we offer here, which is a, a foundation for their operation.
0: How much do you straddle all the way from pre-trade into post-trade, the workflow?
1: So... I'd say quite a lot. So I mean, first off, we're fully focused. We're exclusively driven, so we focus on futures, perps, and options, across both CFI and DeFi, and we do not discriminate. Right. So the our belief is that an option is an option, whether you are essentially executing on an AMM or on a centralized exchange, or perhaps you are, you know, getting a your option over an OTC trade. At the end of the day, if the spec matches, it should be. I'm positioning myself with X, Y, and Z options for a certain strategy that I am trying to implement. So we give people access to the data across the market in a standardized fashion, both through GUI and over APIs. From a price discovery standpoint, they're able to go into the platform and sort of look holistically across the market of what are the potential opportunities that are out there. They're able to take action on that information by executing through a variety of different advanced order types and strategies and they can do that by collaborating with other traders so the idea is that the workflow kind of works together analysts are able to do that discovery and then sort of promote these potential ideas to their traders and then you know or maybe not maybe the traders just know what they want to do and what they want to go and execute for so they can go in and do that and then once that is done there's a centralized sort of dashboard available at both like, you know, the, the sub account account level for traders all the way to like, you know, the master sort of view for fund admins, where they can see the entire exposure of the, of the fund broken down by each trader, like activity, what they've actually interacted with or not, you know, you're in real time, your PNL, your net asset value across the different asset classes that you're managing within Kemet, and then obviously you know we give people access to recon jobs. We give them access to risk slides. We give them access to various different analytics that allow them to even further sort of identify issues with their portfolios if there are any.
0: It's quite comprehensive. So for anyone who's actually you know been on a trading desk or as a portfolio manager or as an execution trader, what you just described is really an attempt to provide a comprehensive coverage of all these functions, sort of all-in-one, vertically integrated, all the way from pre-trade to post-trade analytics. So it's obviously a buy versus build consideration on the part of your potential customers. And the idea is also you're cross-pollinating from your conversations and engagement across your customer base to continue to further enhance the feature set trying to overlap as much as possible with the vast majority of requirements that then benefit, you know, the rest of your customers on an ongoing basis. How do you think about pricing and justifying that value add, especially, you know, right now we're in a challenging market. Yeah. You know, I happen to know, you know, that market on the tradfi side, especially in the equity and spot and futures and options side of, you know, OMS and risk management systems. It is a challenging market. You know, crypto is, is in a winter. How do you price your product? And how do you justify the value you're creating?
1: So it's, it's definitely an interesting like topic to discuss, right? Because pricing is one of those things that is just very... Right. There is no one answer that works and just works all the time. I think as a pure technology offering, we come in with sort of a partner take, right? We're interested in helping first and foremost. So we try to work with a lot of like... Or early customers to understand how their needs might sort of align with costs that are associated with like running their Kemet instance, right? And how can that end up becoming sort of a win-win scenario there? But to make it a little bit more simplistic, I mean, we try to sort of really focus on execution and getting you to like to extract the value by correlating like dollar amounts that you've been able to execute within Kemet because we have the centralized access to the entire market, right? And how we can perhaps be a partner in that success within our pricing model. So our core focus early on is sort of a scaling fee schedule on like not notional volume. We do not charge by seat. You can have you know n number of users of the platform, depending on their various different functions within your organization. Because we really want everyone to kind of work together, right? And the focus is that we also do not discriminate. So if you do not have Let's say a counterparty relationship with a venue that we have integrated in Kemet, we still want to expose you to their data, even though it might cost us a little bit more to provide that data over to you. But we think that that's imperative for you to kind of get that feeling of being in control. If your let's say you know, requirements are I'm only trading with like Binance or I'm only trading with Deribit, I don't see a reason why you're not able to see perps on all the other like markets that Kemet supports, right? Or liquidity vendors that we support so we really try to come in as a partner more than anything else and our intention is to kind of like really focus on the core functions across all these you know different stops in the journey of a trade life cycle and build the bare essentials in the best way possible so if you were to take a look at our platform it's actually a very clean user experience because we've kind of taken things down to the bare bones almost the focus is on you know, pure function rather than giving you a Swiss knife. I want to give you like, you know, whatever it is that you will need out of that Swiss knife, but the best sort of version of that with as minimal toil as possible for your onboarding and experience.
0: So, you know, this brings up an interesting discussion point, which is in the business of providing trading infrastructure, there is sort of that tug of war between you know the customer wanting to pay for what they actually use, and there's metrics that you can index that on. You mentioned volume, and it's, a, it's common throughout the industry to have certain offerings be tied to execution volumes. But if you look at it from an investor or enterprise value creation and quality of earnings and quality of revenue, in terms of predictability uh, being anti-cyclical volumes can be tricky right because they are tied to how the market is doing how involved traders are with the market and so that's something that inevitably over the course of building the business on the one hand you know you want to work as you said as a partner to your customers but at the same time you want to think keep your you know enterprise value creation and fiduciary hat on in terms of thinking how you create reliable, stable, uncorrelated revenue streams. What is your approach to capturing market share and generating you know, engagement on the customer side? How do you go to market? How do you win accounts?
1: That's a great question. It's currently something that I'm experimenting with, right? So we are still to go full-on production for the entire market. Our technology is currently on an invite-only basis, but it's definitely something we're kind of thinking about constantly given how the market is just like has shifted post ftx everything that i planned for pre-ftx has kind of become more or less like obsolete now the players in the institutional sort of space have different priorities in terms of like counterparty risk they have different priorities in terms of instruments they want to get their hands on they you know depending on how big of a player they have become and how critical they have become to a certain venue, they might have more leverage than others and sort of dictating like how what sort of integrations come in first versus versus others. So there are all these different things, but to summarize it most, it's one of the key things that I feel we have an advantage in is that we're we're kind of like we have this first mover advantage in the driver space. Our go-to-market strategy, which I can discuss with you separately, is kind of also supported by this notion of there really isn't much on the derivative side right now. And the appetite has actually spiked up quite a lot post FTX. Everyone now wants to hedge their positions. Everyone now wants to be able to sort of manage risk from a centralized standpoint. Uh, everyone now is seeking sort of you know reliable infrastructure that can function during these spikes of the market that can allow them to sort of take control when you know sort of shit hits the fan that they can nuke things when they want to. They can liquidate themselves faster than others. There's all these different requirements now that I believe Kemet has a vast advantage in that obviously is sort of really helping put together that go-to-market strategy overall. But I would say it's still a work in progress. And I wouldn't say that we're the only ones in that space. I'd say that everyone really in in digital assets now is kind of reassessing for 23, what's the best way to position yourself for hopefully the next bull market, right? What's the best way of doing that?
0: What's interesting is obviously, you know, what's happened in this space is we've lost a lot of dealers and we've lost a lot of capability in order to make markets, to provide liquidity on an institutional size with some OTC desks either being affected or disappearing altogether. So you have this interesting situation where, you know, some hedge funds have actually done really well. There's been winners and losers, but you have a dearth of balance sheet on the dealer side. So you're going to have to wait also for that to sort of settle. You're going to have to wait for new enterprise creation. Inevitably, there will be new entrants on the dealer side, whether there are TratFi firms entering the game and there's a few efforts ongoing or newcomers in order for it to to start you know, taking off again and start ascending in terms of activity. Until then... You know, the concept of institutionalizing the sales process is tricky because until you have a well defined pattern of how the adoption works and what the sales cycle looks like, it's very hard to build an organization ex ante around something that is not fully defined, right? If you have an existing business where you have a set of patterns, you understand the sales cycle you can build an organization functionally around that to execute, and then you can scale it in terms of heads. But before that, to your point, it's a little bit of a, an experimental process where you're trying to create the pattern as to how you approach clients, what the sales cycle is, meaning how do you need to triangulate, who your champions on are, um, how decisions get made, right? All these things you will learn along the way to start developing what is a sales cycle right and then eventually you can build a sales organization and then there's interaction with marketing and creating thought leadership and communicating across your stakeholder map to engage you know the various participants in the marketplace and trying to communicate to them in the way that they want to be communicated to and be receptive to the tools that you're providing and making sure that they know that you are providing such tools are there any costs to You know, like in TradFi, for example, there are variable costs in terms of market data to provide what you're providing. There's obviously, you know, cloud service delivery, right? All this infrastructure has to run somewhere. How is that in the digital asset space? And how heavy are sort of those costs of goods sold in your business?
1: Yeah. So just like in TradFi, obviously, you know, data is not cheap and building in the cloud for something that is sort of end-to-end capable of dealing with a certain level of scale is also not cheap. One of the key things that I'd say we're very strong at is not relying on third-party providers. So I'd say 95% of our tech stack was built in-house, including actually building our own sort of like data providing like shared layer. So in fact, we actually pay $0 for our data for public market data we've spent you know quite an investment into building infrastructure that does not rely on a third party data provider and in fact we go out and this is the beauty of honestly just building in this world is you know it is out there it's just you have to build the pipelines for it so public market data across every liquidity vendor that we integrate currently in kemet is something that is natively supported as part of the integration so we do not leverage a third data party provider there it gives us quite an edge at the cost level as well as like gives us quite an edge to control the flow there, as well as being able to provide our users a better experience in terms of latency, in terms of like providing data directly and natively from within Chemin APIs for other use cases that they might have at the cloud sort of, you know, level of cost. It's kind of very similar to building technology in the trap world. We haven't seen anything that I personally haven't seen anything that's out of the realm of, Things that I've dealt with before in terms of cost. Geo locating services in various different regions because you want to be able to manage latency is also not a theme that I'm not familiar with at all. So I'd say I, I don't see it. The very clear distinction here is the insane immaturity that we've assessed in essentially like market infrastructure. That theme kind of replicates itself over and over again across all the vendors that you might be able to see out there. Like there are some that are better than others, but absolutely it is very evident that like the infrastructure across the entire ecosystem has been built in, in a hurry and because of like you know just the wild west nature of digital assets and crypto for the past like five years people have been able to get away with all this stuff right and just let's let's just make it happen we've got people that want to buy stuff who cares if our API doesn't work or who cares if flick you know it's not responding like we put in the documentation or who cares if the documentation is even worse? So, I think that's kind of what we're also here to change completely, right? And you can imagine the pain at the institutional level to even build for a centralized workflow across that ecosystem. It's incredibly, incredibly painful. To try to alleviate that.
0: So, it goes back to the buy versus build. And in this particular market, more so than a mature market with standards, with a taxonomy, with nomenclature, with all these things that we're used to in the TradFi world, right? whether it's the fixed protocol execution layer, whether it's very well-defined nomenclatures as to how things are cold or specified, you're doing all that work. You know, the reason why I like to emphasize on the cost of goods sold is, again, when you eventually get to, you know, escape velocity and how you look at your p and one of the things you want to keep an eye on is your gross margins, right? So at the top line level, you wanna build a highly diversified customer base, you wanna have decent growth, you wanna have predictability in the revenue flows, and you wanna have great positive retention. People buying into your product, continuing to upgrade, continue to buy more from you. But all that being said, you need to do so in the way that for every dollar that you make, you keep most of it. And so that's why, you know, Building and capitalizing the, the infrastructure to capture the data, for example, is wise because you're building a solid advantage when it comes to what it costs you to generate a dollar of revenue, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's a lot of like, you know, thought has been put into how can we franchise our like revenue sort of like driving you know, articles. And this is evidently something that obviously I've, I've you know, was, was part of building prior Sort of companies. So it's it's very clear to me what are the, you know, that it, it, it won't just be sort of a, a, an order fee model. We're not just an execution service, right? And we've dropped a lot of investment to kind of like building the basic blocks that will allow us to sort of venture out in different revenue business models uh, because of how we've built the platform itself and the modularity that we've dropped into the product and the different sort of, you know, stops in that trade lifecycle.
0: So We're now in a very, very different world than when you got started, when you made the decision, and presumably you were prompted to make the move and encouraged by what was a very buoyant market and context. Now it's very different. Even though things seem to be bottoming out, we're a long way from getting back to the exuberance of 2021. What is the impact of the crypto winter? as many call it, on the anticipated adoption functioning of your offering, but also fundraising. You know, you raise some money, presumably you have fuel in the tank, but you're going to need, it's an institutional business, you're going to need more, you're going to need to scale, and you're going to need to make sure that you preserve that first mover advantage. Can you give us a little bit of color as to, again, what the impact of the winter is on all these different components?
1: Sure yeah so first i guess for the first question is like the impact on institutional adoption this is like the kind of business that Kemet is in is evidently just like the criticality of it is non-negotiable right for that adoption never happened so there's no doubt in my mind and, and other sort of investors and you know investors that weren't able to get it even to Kemet early on that this is the year of infrastructure and if anything all the events that we've seen in 22 are now sort of solidifying that take that it's like it will take, you know, sort of experienced technologists and builders that are relevant to the institutional space to build for the institutional space for that adoption to work correctly. Right. So that's one. Two, for from my point of view, I'm even more like a thousand percent more optimistic of the future of derivatives now than anything before there are various signals of this wave of tokenization that's going to be happening for real-world world assets that institutions are already holding today, except that they were, will move on to sort of deal with them at the tokenized layer. And those will result into you know a massive unlock of a unprecedented derivatives market that we've never seen before, which will honestly just blow all our minds, right? And this gives us even a better sort of outcome of what the future of Canada might look like because of the fact that we are building a digitally native product for the new digital asset derivative world without any discrimination. Like why are we focused on crypto I and mean, crypto is where we are because that defines the digital asset space today, but not to say that like in a year or two or three from today, right? The number of derivatives on tokenized assets, whether they are real world assets, you know, NFTs, collectibles, anything else that you could just tokenize. The fact is that there will exist a robust market for these, and there will be a requirement yet again for adequate infrastructure to deal with those instruments and those markets. So that that's that. The third, I guess, question you had was about like just what the investor appetite is this year, right? So, and I think this is something that you probably have heard multiple times, whether with other guests or in prior conversations, or perhaps with with some of your peers or other investors. That there is quite the massive amount of like dry powder that's out there that a lot of like VCs are holding and the mandates do not change. Deployments still are required to go. And in fact, now they're doubling down on like finding quality, you know, foundational projects and, and, uh, and companies that are truly equipped, not only to build for the dream, but that their dream is also, you know, sort of optimistically foundational this reality. It's not something that is sort of like, let's go out and build like this new primitive, perhaps that we don't know if it's going to be adopted or not, right? What we are working in is sort of like the you know ground zero sort of foundational layer for like this market to continue existing in the first place. And I don't think anyone has any doubt that this is where we need to be today. And this is what has to happen for the next you know trillion dollars to start flowing into this market. So, you know, as a personal anecdote, like all the conversations that I've had recently in the last past couple of weeks with various different like institutional investors, some of them are also from the trap fight world, to be honest, are now looking at this as an insane opportunity to invest into, you know, projects such as Kevin and others that are really building sort of for, for the next wave of big players and like this, you know, unlocking the value of like a market that everyone knows is now inevitable, right? I don't think anyone can argue that we're going to be dealing with money and value the same way that we're dealing with today in 10 years from now. No one should, like, I don't think anyone's arguing that. The question is, how are we going to be dealing with it? And what is it going to look like? Some are building what it's going to be looking like, right? Others are building, how are we going to be dealing with that? And that's kind of where we fall into.
0: Makes sense. And what do you think are the most exciting developments in the space, whether they're intimately tied to your own business or as in general, as you look at the space under the assumption that, you know, one, you need to stay on top of the various facets of the industry, but also might have some ancillary interests in other corners of, uh, at the digital asset space. What, uh, piques your interest these days?
1: I'm really, so some of the projects that are kind of like stand out to me, honestly, are the likes of like Karna for Unlocking sort of tokenized like equity in tokens, really for various you know different use cases. I feel like, like that's such a I such thing for especially like you know token heavy reliant projects down the road. And how do you actually build an ecosystem for a standard sort of relationship between employees and employers or sort of organizations that are based on tokens being like the incentive model to kind of keep on building. I haven't seen anything like before that is trying to address that, but I've seen a couple of projects like these days that are kind of like working on that front. Their name kind of really bleeds my mind right now, but I think that's that's one of those things that I feel is is also a very smart thing to be building for today, because let's be honest, like a lot of like token focused like projects have been just scam rampant and have been you know have had various issues with like unlocks in general. And who gets to sort of own that process and who gets to, you know, sort of unlock to other people their hard earned like tokens as being involved in the project early on. And like, how do you automate that process and how do you make it even further decentralized from like the human factor? I think that's uh, those that's definitely have piqued my interest like recently. Another project that you and I honestly were were just discussing, and I've seen other versions of which is just building exchanges and, and sort of markets for. Excuse me, for derivatives on top of like the NFT ecosystem. I think that's very, very large market that requires to be untapped. Imagine all the, you know, the hundreds of millions of potential investors that might want to get a taste of what does it mean to be exposed to owning, you know, a bored ape, but perhaps don't have the time or the, you know, technical literacy to sit down and learn how to get a wallet and get involved to all that, but instead they just go over to Robinhood. and buy aboard a perp right that sounds that unlocks quite a value, and they would still be able to get exposed to the movements of these things so I think it's that's definitely a very interesting piece to keep an eye on
0: absolutely, I think you and I share a similar opinion on that front. It's incredible to think that you know a decade from now we'll likely be trading both spot and potentially derivatives on a number of assets such as Collectibles, but also reward programs, right? Think about a vastly different environment where, you know, point programs such as, you know, United Airlines Miles will now be traded much more actively on a transparent, you know, framework that people can participate in, you know, attracting new entrants that can make markets, can generate value, can be incentivized to provide liquidity, and seeing the transfer of those assets between willing participants. So I think all of this is very much part of the future and the infrastructure that you're building today needs to anticipate that, right? Not think just TradFi, just the same workflow, but think about what is the asset base ultimately going to look like? And part of it is, and that's the role of a founder and a visionary, trying to anticipate what that looks like, right? That's the product management function, the product management half to try to understand Where do I need to be five years from now to overlap with market demand? And part of it is also creating market demand and contributing to that as well. You know, as we draw close to to the end of the podcast and, you know, we could go on for, for a while, there's so many different aspects and points to cover. You, throughout the description of your upbringing and your career and this new venture, are constantly looking to upgrade to do more. Right now, you're in execution mode. And the likelihood is it's going to be like this for a while. That is the essence of building a business. There's the excitement of getting up and running. You cleared a few hurdles. You were able to get institutional capital. And that's something that very few people are even able to do. But what do you feel you haven't accomplished at this point? And what metrics will you use to define your success along the way, right? Because I'm assuming you're not going to just move on to the next thing in six months because you, know, you have this new idea or you want to, you know, move up the food chain, you're going to keep building Kemet, right, in the foreseeable future. How are you going to track your progress along the way to measure that you are progressing? Because that seems to be a constant trend in your career.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's kind of just building some form of seed for a legacy, right? I think it's, uh, that's kind of like my ultimate goal at this point, like at least for the foreseeable future is like to, one, I want to build a an unmatched like experience when it comes from a product perspective. And I know that might sound a little bit unorthodox, but honestly, like the financial services industry altogether, like is is in dire need of a fresh look of like design and feel. I believe that we're building for the next wave of institutional, like, you know, talent, which is going to be very, very sort of experience heavy and design heavy and are not going to be okay with like cluttered design that looks like it was built back in the 80s. So one thing that I want to continue working on for this year is like just kind of establishing Kevin as like the, not only at the sort of the core tech side, like unmatched in terms of like performance, but also as an experience is sort of the, like the, the next level up that's adequate with the fact that we're now moving into a new sort of asset class market, right? I think that theme aligns very much to what I think we should be successful at. How am I going to measure like measure this is, is honestly it's a very hard thing to measure, but it's it's kind of something that you try and gauge right by asking people how' does this feel right every single time I have a call with a potential customer with an existing pilot client, and I hear the word like this is unbelievable like the, the this is crazy like how are you guys being able to do this like why is it so seamless? I could see the information that I need without having to look at like a thousand different, like, you know, units or digits up there, right? This is, this brings joy to us and makes us feel like we we're, were on the right track. And obviously the next of milestone is to, you know, be production ready this summer and go out and sort of uh, execute our, our go-to-market strategy fully, right? Hopefully this is the year we kind of even solidify ourselves further. And you know, last year we barely had time to kind of like build, but quickly on, you know, I ended up getting my lead investor in April. I closed my C round in July, which was very oversubscribed. I had managed to kind of like raise money in an incredibly hard time. This was during, you know, Terra Luna collapse. This was, you know, 3AC, just like, just going berserk. Like, so there's there was all these things going on, but yeah, we still managed and, and sort of prevailed. We started building right away, you know, on top of like what initially was just a POC. And in November of last year, we won the FIA Expo, People's Choice Award, which in irrelevance, like the year prior, you know, at the Innovator Pavilion was Talos and, you know, Credor and like Paradigm, folks that we believe have built incredible technology. We feel that we were able to do that in an even short amount of time and sort of impress the right audience. And I feel like further this year, we're on, on track to kind of really sort of prove that this is the right solution for dealing with the pains of a nascent market that we call the digital asset drivers.
0: Well, you certainly have shown in the past that you are able to execute. You have the willpower to do that. You have the willpower to start in new areas and succeed. And so whilst the path ahead is probably going to be arduous, I think it's going to be difficult. You're certainly well positioned from the standpoint of your own DNA, as well as the product you're building, to play a key role in the way the industry evolves and providing those tools that these institutions that are market participants will need to thrive in this. So I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. It's been great. I think what you're building is obviously very necessary, really isn't anybody else out there who has this focus and who is as committed to solve this particular part of the market. And I think it's going to pay off. So I look forward to continuing to seeing your progress. staying in touch and seeing you thrive
1: thank you i appreciate it thank you it was a pleasure and thanks for, for hosting me today
0: this podcast is produced by radio venture management llc rvm rvm is not an investment advisor